0: So Victoria, thank you so much. I want to start by asking you if you can share with us a little bit about your your background, your journey (laughs) and uh, how you've come to where you are now.
1: Oh my goodness. I I remember when the answer to that used to be shorter, uh, but I will (laughs) do my best. I have always been fascinated by the big picture. I remember what I call my first spiritual experience. I was in a stroller And we were still living at our first apartment, so I hadn't turned three yet. And my nanny took me out at night and there was a a sky full of stars. I lived in Kansas City at the time. It's a very starry place. And I don't even know why we were out late like that. My parents were probably having an argument that she wanted to shield me from. But when we were out and I was looking up at the stars, I remember thinking as this little bitty child, well, that's home. I'm here now. I'm doing this. And there's nothing wrong with it. But it is not home. And Mm. it was just almost like a conscious decision of all right, I'm doing this. And that's kind of been a, a keynote from my life ever since that nanny that I mentioned, was a very spiritual woman. And she had been in Christian science and Rosicrucians and all kinds of things. And she raised me on reincarnation and some other concepts that made yoga a very natural fit for me. So when I heard about yoga, I was 17, this was 1967. So for most people, especially in the Midwest, it was a very alien concept and people confused it with yogurt and thought, Both were (laughs) very alien and probably best avoided. So I read all three books on yoga at the Kansas City, Missouri Public Library, and I I was truly smitten. So I, I moved to London on my 18th birthday and found a yoga teacher, became vegetarian, and started or continued with this journey when I moved back to Kansas City, um, Integral Yoga had shown up there in, I believe, 1971. And I started taking classes there and was able to meet Swami Sachidananda a couple of times, hear him speak several times. And my path just kept taking all of these turns. So I'd always been a writer. I'd written for rock magazines as a kid, pop teen magazines. I'd gotten into my first Beatles press conference when I was 14. When I was 17, uh, Paul McCartney bought me a drink, which I thought, okay, if I die now, I've done everything. How could I ever top this? But then after I became vegetarian, the writing shifted and I was writing for more health kinds of, of publications and eventually uh, moved to the Theosophical Society in Illinois, worked in their library, learned a lot. Um, later, I did go to college, got a degree in comparative religions. and it it was just this continual journey, which continues to this day. So, Most recently, well, all the books are in there. I've written 13 books, some on spirituality, some on vegan living, got on Oprah and did all those things you were supposed to do (laughs) as a self-help author. And uh, during the pandemic, I did yoga teacher training just because something showed up in my inbox that said, you want to do yoga teacher training? and. For all these years, for 53 years in in yoga, I I had never done that. So I just clicked. Yes, it was not integral yoga. And so I asked if the asana part where you're supposed to take, I think it was 15 hours of class a week outside of this course. I said, can I do that with integral yoga? Because that's what I do. And they said, yes. So I did that and then um, followed up with integral yoga with the Raja yoga teacher training and I'm working now on my 14th book, which uh, will be, God willing, that it gets its perfect publisher and all that, called Age Like a Yogi, A Heavenly mm. Path to a Dazzling Third Act. Hmm. Ah, <laughs> it's a lot. There's a lot there. <laughs> Thanks <that>. Well done.
0: <laughs> so I, I want to um, ask you about just food. And yeah. you seem to have committed uh, a lot of your focus to um, helping people be more aware of what they're eating and you have a passion about what we put in our body. So why so why why are why is food so important to you?
1: Yeah. You know, I think I would say food is not very important to me, although I like to eat, but what's really important to me is ahimsa. And I love animals, even when I was eating them and didn't know exactly all that that entailed and what I was really doing, I still said, oh, I love animals. And I met someone early on who said, well, I don't love animals, but I hate cruelty. And I'm on both sides. I love animals, I hate cruelty. Mm -hmm. So when I found the vegetarian path, It was very natural. In fact, I tried to be vegetarian when I was 13. I just didn't know what to eat and I eventually got really hungry. But this idea of honoring the life in non-human beings has always been something very dear to my heart. It's really difficult for me to understand why, even though this is a much more widespread belief system than it was 50 years ago, I don't understand why it's not universal. I can understand why people get upset with other people because we can irritate each other. (laughs) And sometimes people do malicious things to one another. So this um, loving our neighbor, that can be a big deal. But to extend that to, to the innocent, to the cows, the pigs, the sheep, the chickens, the turkeys. To me, that just seems like the easiest thing on earth, even though I know for a lot of people it isn't. So the health part of it for me was kind of twofold. First was back at that time when you went vegetarian and certainly vegan, everybody was afraid for your survival, even though even then people were doing it to save their lives. If you did it not to save your life, but to save somebody else's life. And then all the friends and relatives were like, "Oh, you're going to be deficient in this. You're going to die of that." Hasn't happened yet. Um, but also, I was a practicing compulsive eater throughout my youth. My dad was a diet doctor. My mother was in the fitness industry. So I was a fat kid, bad for business, and had battled a lot of of the weight thing. And what ultimately happened for me. I went vegetarian. That didn't change the compulsive eating at all. But when I was 33, my daughter was an infant and I knew that I wanted to raise her vegan because I had been trying to do that for several years and the eating disorder always got in the way. But I looked down at her and her crib and it's like, I want to give you this gift. So I really immersed myself in a 12-step program for compulsive eaters. And when I finally had the choice around food, which I think I'd never really had before, it was very easy to choose vegan. Now I believed that I would never lose any weight because I would be eating all those carbs. But what actually happened was More than 60 pounds came off. I don't know how much more because I had stopped weighing when it got to the point, I just couldn't stand to see the number. At least 60 pounds came off and has stayed that way for 38 years. So I knew that I was on to something because weight issues and health consequences uh, that sometimes follow those are certainly epidemic in, in this country. And so I just started looking from the outside. Well, what am I doing that works? And I think the first thing was almost karmic that I was eating in such a way that to the best of my ability would not harm other beings. And I believe that health and vitality and a lot of good things come simply from that. And then I was also looking for ways to find the healthiest foods that I could eat. Because one thing about being a compulsive eater is you just like all food. You know, some people say, ooh, I don't like that healthy food. I don't like brown rice. You know, I don't like kale. I'm like, I do. Uh, <laughs> I'm very um, forgiving of foods. I, I pretty much uh, like just about anything especially uh, prepared well so um i looked at that original yogic diet and it was fruits vegetables grains legumes nuts and seeds it did include what they called at, at that time milk from healthy cows and i i believe that it's uh, no longer possible to get milk from truly healthy, holistically healthy cows. I'm not sure that it's possible to find in any practical way, karma-free milk. But other than that, I was eating just the way the yogis thousands of years ago had suggested for not just maintaining uh, physical health, but spiritual health to be able to meditate for long periods and the things that were required for spiritual growth. So When I think about how I eat, in fact, I I wrote a book with this title. It's The Good Karma Diet. (laughs) And uh, it's worked so well for so long with, you know, little tweaks. Sometimes I'm more Ayurvedic. Sometimes it gets hot in the summer and I eat more raw food. But generally speaking, it's whole plant foods. And those are easy to get wherever you are in the world. And you can tweak it to your own Body and what you digest well, and what makes you feel good, and I felt good for a really long time.
0: Mm. I want to go back to um something that you mentioned around i don't know what word you use, but you know confusion about the fact that human beings could be you know eating these animals like this other intelligent life form, right and just like wondering, like, how could this be like so common, right? What would be your answer to that? how, How is it possible? Why is it happening?
1: I think if we look at what is happening on earth, what has happened on earth through the millennia, we see that this is a plane of existence that has a great deal of beauty, and that offers us this wonderful opportunity to learn and grow and serve and love, but it's not heaven. (laughs) And things happen here that are absolutely unspeakable. And one of those, I believe, is the widespread enslavement of other beings for human pleasure. And we've built up around that these very strong traditions. And I'm not saying that there has never been a reason in human history or even in the present day for certain people in certain circumstances to do what they need to do to survive. I'm talking about Western people living in somewhat modern times. I'm talking today, back even, you know, 100 years ago. Why haven't we gotten? the message yet Mm -hmm. that we can be happy, healthy, and eat well in a way that doesn't harm others, that doesn't cause suffering, and that doesn't impact the planet so abysmally as widespread animal agriculture does. I don't know if that's because people are on different soul age points and I don't know if it's because some people get certain aspects of the whole and other people get other things. I mean, I certainly don't want to judge or say, oh, yes, you know, we vegans and vegetarians, we're like mm, up here, because there are people that are eating meat that are devoting their whole life to serving others. So it's very, very tricky. And I believe that if I had an answer to your question, (laughs) the world would change. Or if somebody had an answer to your question, the world would change. I think maybe, maybe the key is that we haven't reached critical mass on this. And there's something that I see from just having lived as long as I have. There were things that were absolutely perfectly acceptable when I was a kid, in terms of uh, how people raise their children, in terms of the kinds of of jokes that were okay, in terms of the things that a man could say to his wife. So many things were like, yeah, that's just how it is. Well, that's no longer how it is because we've evolved past that. And we are slowly, but more rapidly than I've ever seen before, growing toward this acceptance of an animal-free diet. And I believe that within 50 years, and I wish I could say five, but within 50 years, the the consumption of animal foods will be like smoking cigarettes. And whenever Mm. I see somebody standing outside an office building in New York City on a snowy day, second on their cigarette, I don't think, oh, how glamorous, that's like somebody in the old movies. I think, oh, bless their heart. This is an addict that has to stand out in the snow to to partake of this thing. I think that's going to be where animal food will be. I wish it could be day before yesterday.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I think the critical mass thing is exactly the case, you know, around this issue and so many issues, what I find is that, you know, social pressure is such a real thing, such a guiding thing for us in in our lives that I've found that as human beings want to be accepted, we want to be included. And that's really what drives us. Like, we're not as independent as we make ourselves out to be, right? So just, just to acknowledge that, that we're social creatures. And so therefore, like that allows systems and ways of being that really don't make a lot of sense. Or aren't in alignment with our values to continue on for a long time, simply because that's what everyone is doing around me. And what would it mean for me and my identity to move outside of that? The, honestly, I think that is the challenge for many people to start something new. I mean, also you have like the addiction, the habit of, of just those foods in themselves But also, what would it mean for me in my social circle if I became a vegan? Are they gonna look down there and think I'm weird? I kinda went crazy, you know, things like that.
1: I think that's very true. And some surveys show that there's a very high vegan recidivism rate. Although I was talking about that with a wonderful physician, Dr. Neil Barnard of Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And he said, well, but there's a high recidivism rate for smokers. It takes them quitting nine times on average (laughs) to get the job done. And we know there are a lot of ex-smokers. But whenever I talk to people who used to be vegan or who used to be vegetarian, they'll they'll give some kind of vague reason for why they quit. It, it's never anything like, you no, know, I, I developed type two diabetes or heart disease because that kind of stuff generally goes away on a, a well-planned plant-based diet. But what they'll say is, oh, I, I felt tired or I just didn't feel right. But then as you listen further and you listen kind of between the lines, it's it, it's a, a new relationship, Or Mm. it's just somebody was hammering, 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 joking, 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 teasing, teasing, teasing to the point of just like, I can't do this. But what's interesting and why the Gen Z's are just going crazy in terms of of overnight vegan and, and sticking with it is because of the internet. And there is so much support and so much information there that we never had before. So just as so many things are speeding up on planet Earth and some things that maybe aren't so positive, but but this thing, this understanding of of the value of the lives of other beings and how well one can live without exploiting them, it's it's growing so, so rapidly uh, among young people. So that's very hopeful. Mm.
0: What's your take in terms of maybe what you've noticed to be uh, a more successful strategy for people and becoming vegan, vegetarian, vegan? Yeah, I think. Is it? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say between like someone who's just like today, that's it. I'm going to totally change and jump into the deep end and everything's different or I'm going to gradually move in that direction.
1: I'm so glad you asked that because the entire first chapter of my book, Main Street Vegan, is all about that. And I think it depends on the kind of person you are. Statistically, the studies that they have done, psychological studies, say that people stick with things better when they have made small incremental changes, but there are some people who are all or nothing people. And you can look at other changes in your life. For example, if you woke up one day and recognized this relationship is toxic, I'm done Mm -hmm. and you're done. You don't send that person a text after that. Well, then maybe you're the kind of person who could do the overnight thing with the diet and you're fine. And other people maybe need to do it a little more slowly. That was certainly my path. I I wish mine had been quicker, (laughs) but we all have the history that we have. And I think it's very important, particularly around food, not to stress ourselves because the very first thing that we do when when we're born, once we're breathing, is, is latch on to Food, latch on to nourishment. It's so important to us. And so there are so many psychological ramifications of, of the foods we eat. And so to make any kind of really big change, unless you're a rather extraordinary person or so traumatized by some video that you saw online that you just can't possibly eat any any of that stuff ever again, it probably works better for most people to give themselves a couple of months just to get educated because you want to find out, well, what does it take to be healthy? Do I need any supplements that I'm not taking now? What do I buy? And and how, how do I shop? And how do I eat out? And how do I entertain? And how do I date? And how do I live with my family? And how do I talk with other people? So these are all things that there's something of a learning curve. So there are books, there are documentary films, there are websites. So it's not something that has to take years, but it might take weeks. It might take, uh, you know, three, four months for somebody to really get a firm, firm footing. And then, of course, if you eat really good food, that helps a lot, too.
0: (laughs) Right. I wanted to ask you about, like, there seems to be a need for us to draw line somewhere on a personal level right and we all like in terms of doing no harm like ahimsa right like some people take it to you know know if you call it extreme measures but like you know look at where they walk so they're not stepping on an ant right Mm -hmm. or not killing a mosquito you know just curious what your take is on this in terms of of where to draw the line because it seems that just to be alive, right, as a human being, we're going to inflict death on some level to other things. And that death is just a part of, of, of life, too. It's not something that, you know, I want to, um, you know, bring about or anything. But I also acknowledge that it's a part of nature and it's natural and it's happening. And for certain things to be alive, that means that other things naturally, you know, die.
1: I think that a lot of it has to do with sentience, pain, and enslavement. So when you start living in this way, most people do start looking out for the ants and things like that. Um, I just there was a little bitty, tiny flying bug in my bathroom the other night. And I just put him in the cup and took him outside. And it's kind of a big deal because I'm on the fifth floor of a high rise in Manhattan. And I'm at the far end of a hall. So I'm carrying this little guy, you know, quite a ways getting the elevator, going down to the second floor where we have a courtyard. And when I took the three by five card off the top of that cup, this little guy just flew. It was thrilling. <laughs> and so I do think that the more you allow your heart to open, mm-hmm. the more you do those kinds of things. As somebody said to me a long time ago, nobody knows what life is. So if if I am able to preserve it, good. And yes, of course, this, this is a, a very violent planet. Uh, things are very difficult. It's it's hard to get a life, and it's hard to sustain a life when we look at at all living kind. And yet, we have agreed as humans that it is wrong to murder other humans. So that's pretty much universally accepted. And I know we make exceptions for war and countries that have capital punishment and whatnot. But generally speaking we agree as a species that killing one another is beyond the moral code that that we hold. And and some of us also believe that it is wrong to kill or make choices that would cause to be killed sentient beings, uh, cows, pigs, sheep, goats, um, chicken, turkeys, ducks, geese, fishes. And even in there, some people will say, well, I don't eat red meat. And of course, as an animal protection person, I will say, could you please eat red meat? Because you're killing a lot more creatures when you eat so-called white meat, because chickens are smaller than cows. Not that I don't completely love the cow, the sacred cow. Um, And yet just in a practical way, if we're looking at preserving life, Let's do the best we can to preserve the most life, and then, of course, some people say, "Well, I'm vegetarian, but I eat fish." Well, that's not vegetarian. That's that's good. That's being you know on on a path on a plan. But fishes too are very unique individuals. They're very aware. This old myth that we were all told as children that uh, fish don't need any stimulation or entertainment because they have fish brain and they only remember for three minutes, completely wrong. There's a fabulous book by an animal behaviorist, uh, Jonathan Balcom. It's called What a Fish Knows. Absolutely fascinating that they have memories and oftentimes long memories. They recognize one another. They can recognize divers. Some of them go into business. There are certain fishes that have scale cleaning businesses for other fishes and the customers pay attention to who does a better job and they will patronize those scale cleaning businesses that are more efficient. So it's really fascinating what is going on under the water. So that's the vegetarian ethic. We're not going to kill anybody and eat what's left. But vegans say, let's also not eat in such a way that causes pain and suffering and that will eventually lead to death. So a vegan would not eat eggs. Of course, a yogic vegetarian uh, doesn't eat eggs either. It's a very, very cruel industry. It's not regulated. You see these things on egg cartons that say um, cage free or free range, but none of that is regulated. So it just makes so much more sense to just say, you know, not for me. And then with dairy, it gets controversial, uh, certainly within the yoga world and the Ayurvedic world, because dairy was a traditional food in India, both Nutritionally, culturally, and um, spiritually, religiously, uh, with with religious uh, rituals, and yet, certainly in the Jain community, in fact, it's, it's the Jain community is widely becoming extremely vegan and when you talked about people that step out of the way of of uh, bugs and things like that i think of the Jain monks who carry their their little sweepers and who wear masks like we've all been doing for the past couple of years but who have always been wearing masks so they don't breathe in anybody so veganism is growing there. veganism is also growing in india and it's a huge undertaking because many commercial uh, dairy concerns play on some of the scriptural references, uh, Krishna's being raised with the milkmaids and and that kind of thing. And so they, they mix the modern dairy industry and their commercial desires in with a long tradition and belief system. So It's a tougher sell for vegans in India than it is in a place like the United States. And yet the fact remains that a cow cannot give milk without having a baby. And in commercial dairying, the baby is removed very often immediately. In organic dairies, they stay for two or three days so that the baby can get the colostrum and then they're separated. And the the pain and, and the wailing on both sides, it, it, it's unbelievable. And especially anybody who, who reveres the, the cow as, as certainly in, in the Indian uh, religious traditions, the cow is, is so important, that, that's just heartbreaking. And then for the mother cow, it happens over and over and over until she is spent. And then she goes to slaughter just as her baby did. And you talk to people that say, oh, well, well we have Ahimsa dairy. And <clears throat> they'll go to all kinds of, they'll jump through hoops to try to figure out how to produce dairy, keep the mothers with the baby, let the baby have all the milk he or she needs and until weaning, keep the boy calves and not send them off for veal. And yet it's just, commercially impossible. I remember having a very long discussion with someone who was trying to convince me about this Ahimsa dairy and how wonderful it was. And it was just left at, you know, good. It, you know, it, it's not for me, um, but thanks for this information. And then I had cause to open their refrigerator And what I found was Chobani yogurt and Trader Joe's milk, because even someone who will spend an hour, you know, debating how wonderful this Ahimsa dairy is, doesn't have it because there's not enough of it. So I'm a very practical person and it makes so much sense to me to just live as much in accordance with Ahimsa as is possible and practical on this earth and it's become far more possible and practical (laughs) nowadays uh, than it ever was back when I was starting out. So I think we're moving, we're moving in a kind direction and I don't know anything more important than that. Mm. Mm.
0: Anything more important than moving in a kind direction. I love that too. It's, it's, it's my experience too, my, my perspective to have a lot of hope that these things take, take time, but that eventually kindness will win out that, you know, one of the best things I ever heard someone told me is that truth is like a magnetic force pulling us toward it. I was Ooh. like, yes. Yeah. And oh, that's, I
1: love that, that.
0: Yeah. Because, you know, but it's, it's not a popular, uh, viewpoint Right now, I find a much more popular viewpoint that like the world is just like collapsing and everything is, you know, going to Armageddon, like all of these kind of negative perspectives on life. Um, but to me, too, like I, I feel that like in a way that is the problem, like if there is a problem, it's that lack of hope, that lack of faith and trust that like we are evolving and moving in a more sensible direction. It just, it's not a straight line, you know, (laughs) and it takes maybe longer than, than we wish it would take a lot of times.
1: Well, my nanny, (laughs) Didi, raised me with the idea that there are facts and those are absolutely factual I know, you know, there's been some uh, confusion in the media the past few years, even about facts, but you know, we know facts are things like gravity. Those are facts, but then there's truth and facts have a small F, truth has a capital T. And this is the eternal kind of, of verity that the truth is that we have to have hope. The truth is that we do change things through our thoughts, words, and actions. And if we're moving toward hope, there is some hope that we can change things. If we just go with that downward pull of, look how bad everything is, look how bad everything is out on the street, look how bad everything is on the news channels, then we can't help with the upward progression of the universe.
0: Yeah, and it seems like there's so much in our identity too that is connected with uh, focusing on the problems, right? Like if I really did have this trust and, and, and faith and hope, like what would I complain about? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think it's considered naive. Mm. And if, if you're really paying attention, then you would know how bad things are. But that's the thing about the facts and the truth. You can know how bad the appearances are and not deny them and not refuse to work on them and get involved in whatever issues are are calling to your heart. But knowing that whatever those facts are manifesting, the underlying truth is that the divinity is at the heart and soul of everything. It's at the heart and soul of us. It's at the heart and soul of every living being and it's looking like from what little I know about quantum physics, it's even at the heart and soul of every atom. So we can balance, you know, yeah, the facts. Woo. Look at those facts. They're, they're just haven't seen them look that bad in a long time, maybe ever, but the truth has never changed. The truth is in there. There is this incredible pull towards enlightenment, towards evolution, towards beauty, towards wonder. And I think it's so important to hang on to that, even in our own lives. And sometimes we can get so serious, especially those of us who tend to be serious, but to sometimes just For example, yesterday, I saw the sweetest movie. It's called Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. And she's this cleaning woman in London, widow who wants a Dior gown. And she goes to Paris and she has so many things knock her down, but she always gets up. And I walked out of there just feeling like all things are possible. So I think we need to give ourselves the gift of that kind of input. We need to be around people like you who have hope, even if we're kind of thinking inside, gosh, Avi must not do a lot of critical thinking or he wouldn't have all that hope. Well, thank God you still got it. And, And just even laughter. And I think something I've seen being part of the animal rights movement for a long time is that the people who are most effective are able to work really, really, really hard, but then also have fun, have have a uplift in their lives, because it's that uplift that fuels the work. It keeps us from getting burned out. So we've got our spiritual practice, we've got our happiness practice, and we've got our hard work around all those nasty facts. And you put that all together, I think you have a pretty effective and productive life. Hmm. Yeah.
0: I love that you bring this up and you know, like uh, the seriousness, right? When I'm able to step back, that doesn't feel so appropriate to me, like in certain situations and I can get very serious too, but like overall, like the message that, that I receive is to see this life through the lens of awe and wonder. You mentioned yeah. wonder, right? Like, 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 cause it is, Like it's told this experience that we're all having, like that's it's unbelievable. It's so far beyond anything that my mind could conceive of, you know, so like the word appropriate is really important to me. Like what what is appropriate? And then I see like the, the, the seriousness, the heaviness doesn't feel so appropriate because that's just like what is already there. There's so much of the heaviness already there. And I think what many of us are are craving—we don't even know—it is a sense of of lightness and a sense of freedom uh, in in our lives. Um, Yeah, but but I find it to be a real practice to to see life through the lens of wonder because I lived a long time without kind of viewing it in in that way. And what gets in the way is this kind of like the battle, the for and against, right? Like there's people doing something wrong, and you know they're I'm um, against them, right? Like the competition goes very, very deep. And all that competition to me gets in the way of just like seeing that, like, in the end, we're all teammates, whether or not we like it, because we're all connected. And um, I want to be amazed by the wow. stars and by the nature and all of that.
1: Oh, that's so beautiful. I think there's something that I've talked about for a long time called attractivism or attraction activism. And I actually got that from, from the 12-step programs. So They say in AA and the other ones, uh, the phrase is attraction rather than promotion. And the idea is that if you have what somebody else wants, they'll go to any length to get it. And so what I want to do if I want people to consider being vegan, to consider looking at yoga, whatever it is that I find important, then I want to be a good example of those things. I don't want to be so miserable that people are like, I'm going to go have a steak and (laughs) never stand on my head. But it's this This beauty, I mean, and I think about people like that as I'm working on the proposal for the Age Like a Yogi book, I think of the wonderful older people who have inspired me in my life. And one of them that I I write about early in the book is a woman named Iris that I worked with at the Theosophical Library. She lived in the town. She didn't live on site as most of us did. And whenever we were just overwhelmed We'd bring in Iris and instead of complaining like a lot of people would have, well, you know, you wait until all hell breaks loose and then you bring me in. Instead, she would walk in and literally light up the room. She was about 80. And she had wonderful white hair in a, a bun up on her head and just this light. And I remember thinking at the time, I'm 20. I'm supposed to be young and fresh and beautiful and light up the room. But in walks this 80 year old, and she's got the light going on. But that's because she had invested so much in her spiritual practice, in this kind of thinking that you're talking about, in choosing awe instead of the other. Even though anybody that lives that long has been through so much loss, so much disappointment, you just can't be on this earth and avoid that stuff. But to hang on to that awe anyway, to me, that means we're hanging on to that knowledge, whether we know it consciously or not, of this light within, that, that we do have this spark of divinity that unites us and uplifts us. And sometimes we just need somebody to remind us of that because I don't know how it is for you, but I can forget. And I really appreciate when somebody uh, brings me back to my senses.
0: Ah, no question about it, right? Like again, back to the the influence of those around me, and uh, being social creatures, you know, and us all being being connected. It was actually really important for me when I I just saw the power of it, and then actually that's what led me to live here at YogaVille in a community because I started to question, like, what is the best thing for Avi, right? Like it it became. More of like myself seeing myself as my own safekeeper. And so, like in the third person, which I find to be very beneficial actually, because I'm not so like stuck in my identity. I can step back a little bit and then see what is, you know, best for myself, hopefully. And I saw that if, uh, if I'm able to progress um, the most, it's going to be because I'm in a healthier environment. And I'm never going to be able to progress as much if I am not surrounded by uh, people that I feel are are positive examples and can do, you know, what you're talking about. It's so neat to, to be able to be inspired by the people around us and to see different things. But it also takes like a certain amount of, of security and sense of self-worth because the other thing that can happen is uh, I can feel intimidated by someone else and, uh, you know, who you know, feels very light and bright and happy and all of that. And um, I can turn towards, you know, envy or jealousy. And that's, that's the the flip side of that. So, you know, but, but in the end, I don't, I don't think that those things last, you know, maybe if we're having a bad moment or a bad day or something like that. And in the end, after it's settled, you know, those positive examples will be able to kind of settle in. And when I'm thinking clearly, I'll say, well, well, yeah, I'd like to, I like a little bit of that more for myself too, you know?
1: And I think it's really important, you know, maybe there's somebody listening who is like, oh yeah, but you know, look at you guys and you're all surrounded by these people who think like you (laughs) And, and look, take a look at my life. And I think what's so important is that we never lose the power of something seemingly really small to bring in this awareness of divine truth. So you, you buy a, a rose or a carnation from, from the street seller on the corner. You, you get your groceries in and you put the fruit in a bowl and you take a minute to look at it and think, wow how can anybody not believe in God who's ever looked at the inside of a dragon fruit? I mean, it's just to, to really find little ways. I mean, for me, little stuff like making the bed, which I know, you know, there at Yogaville, you guys are so disciplined. That's probably just, you know, nothing, but because I did have this nanny, I never had to make my bed growing up. So it isn't one of those ingrained things that I absolutely cannot walk out the door with an unmade bed. I can very easily walk out the door with an unmade bed. But when I take the time, when I, when I do that, just these simple little practices little bit of asana in the morning just meditation and some of these ayurvedic practices that i just love so much because they give stability to the day so for me for example when i remember to have lemon water in the morning i just feel hydrated all day long you know and i don't know how much of that is physiological truth and how much of it is is the divine placebo effect but it's it really makes a difference. And just to have that kind of Ayurvedic schedule where I get up early and I have my main meal in the middle of the day so I can digest it. And I have a little tiny dinner and I get to bed early. These kinds of things seem almost boring, almost imposed rules and who likes imposed rules, But once you get into them, there's just this wonderful freedom. It's almost like a seatbelt. It's like those race car drivers drive really, really fast, but they have a seatbelt. So there's a little bit of compensation there. And I think when we have some of these parameters in our lives, we feel free and we feel free to do a little bit more adventuring.
0: Hmm. Makes me think that, like discipline in itself, it's not something to confine me. It's actually something there to help me feel more free. Exactly. Oh. Ah, Victoria, it's so great to connect with you. Thank you for for being you. Really.
1: Oh. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I'm so grateful to Integral Yoga and everything that I've learned from the teachings of Swami Satchidananda and from the wonderful people who are teaching now and and have taught me through the years. It's a great gift and grace.
0: I want to wish you uh, all the best um, with your new book and continued work that you're doing. And um, yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to be here today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this content and think others might as well, please feel free to share and subscribe.